want a pickle Just want to ride on my motorcycle Hello everybody and welcome. This is the Nokomoto Podcast, episode 125. I'm your host, MotoGP. With me is your other host, Swiggy. Yo. Swiggy, otherwise known as the Ayatollah of Rock and Rolla. Sure. Coming to you from northern Colorado, where we had another one of our 300 days of sunshine that we normally get each year. Although, apparently not the last couple of years. (laughs) But finally, we did have a day of sunshine because it appears that we're not as on fire as we were last week. Yeah, it's it's a definite improvement. Um, I have been able to walk out to my car without it being covered in ash. That was pretty nice. It's a positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we are coming to you from our secret studios in Swiggy's new place up here. And let's see. What have we got on the agenda for this week? We are going to do best worst bike in the world this week. We are going to talk about we're going to talk about nerd bikes. And we're also going to talk about winter upgrades. Everyone's thinking about putting the bike away for the year. Uh, But that doesn't mean you have to, like, you know, stop your motorcycle fun. It just means there's less riding, but there's still still shit you could do with your bike, right? So what do you say we just cut straight to the chase and we do best worst bike? Let's do it. Okay. So here's how it works. Each week, me and Swookie each pick a different motorcycle – One's going to be the best and one's going to be the worst bike in the world this week. We don't know what each other have chosen. It's always a surprise. Now, don't send us angry emails because you don't like what we picked. It's just a fun way to look at two different motorcycles you might not normally look at twice or even in the way that we've, we've, you know, we've lit them. So, oh gosh, I didn't think of one of those things again. Um, wow, I'm 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 stuck for a um, uh, geez, think of one, Swigs. The people won't let us continue with the show until okay. we have um. one of them. As the great Lord Humongous always says, there's no crying in motorcycles. Yeah. Well, no, I think he said, once again, I'm gravely disappointed that you've made me unleash my dogs of war. There's no crying in motorcycles. (laughs) There we go. All right. So. We. Okay. I should explain just. Now we'll go into it later. Okay. So. Best worst bike in the world this week. Swiggy, you have this week best bike in the world? I do. Okay. Are you ready to reveal it? I am. Okay. And, drum roll, the best bike in the world this week is? The 2019 Suzuki M50 Boulevard. Oh. Okay. Now, we've taken a colossal shit on the M109R, 
we've had sort of okay things to say with like the C30. We've not been nice to the Savage. So we're really rounding out the boulevard line here. <laughs> we are. Oh, of course. Okay. Yeah. I, I wasn't sure if I had a picture of this in my mind, but now that you bring the picture up, this kind of does visually, this bike is somewhere in between the Victory Octane. Thank and you. That is one of the directions I'm going. It's somewhere here. in between the Victory Octane and the Triumph, like uh, Thunderbird. Yes. So I want to pull up a picture of the 2018 Boulevard. So you is can see what an improvement it is. much cheaper, slightly less power, better bang for buck for real world purposes, um, Indian Scout? Uh, power wise, it's not even as powerful as like the Scout 60. Right, but I'm saying for real world purposes. Like, well, I guess yeah. no. Well, okay, the Scout has real world purposes, but is this sort of a if you're cool with sixty ish horsepower, good replacement for? Yes. So this is, I would more, I would compare this more to a bit more of a modern build, an American styled, uh, Gucci V seven. Okay. If the V7 styling doesn't do it for you and you want something liquid cooled with a few more horsepower and about the same torque, this is what you're going for. So I want to put this alongside, uh, well, I'm going to show you what the 2018 looked like. And you're going to see where it all finally comes together for me and why I pick the 2019 and not the 2018 or earlier. Is it because this one has that fantastic like headlight nacelle? That, and also, they were brave enough to not completely black it out. Oh, yeah. Suzuki had a really hard problem with trying to be edgy with their cruiser line of bikes. And the bikes just didn't have enough. It's like a teenager going goth. They want to be edgy so hard. But but you're 17. We can't take you seriously. Stop it with all the black. And I yeah. guess the M109, like, I don't know, went to Target, got some regular clothes, but also got a pretty good looking tattoo. Yeah. Well... I, I always think about, <laughs> you know, this and, and, and the blacked out um, M, is the M104 or the 109? M109R. The m one oh nine. I don't think even they do a regular one. It's just the M109R. There's no right. 109 regular. It's such, but I hate that bike. It, like, look, when Douglas Adams was describing hot black Desiato's spaceship, this is black, so black it couldn't be any blacker. <laughs> so black you couldn't see the shape of it. Exactly. Black uh, paneling on the floor covered by black carpets. 
with a black screen, with black buttons, with black labels, with black lights behind them. Right. Like, let's settle down a little bit. Let's add a little bit of color. Let's have some different shades on here. This is really starting to mellow it out. And, you know, it is still kind of in the same vein as the dude who knows how to paint who knows how to use automotive paint but has no concept of design or style who blacks out yeah. his honda shadow mm -hmm. but it all just comes together cleanly from the factory in something that's appealing and you know it isn't a fifteen thousand dollar sportster that you paid half the price and just the mods and the stage kits and all the bullshit it's just clean and it's cheap and cheerful. But as you're passing somebody on the street or as you're riding in traffic, nobody really knows the difference. And, you know, at that price, at you know, I think brand new, this is $8,700 MSRP. Oh, that's good. And it's 53 horsepower. I think it's like max 50 foot-pounds of torque. So, okay, so power-wise, it's right in between the 883 and the 1200 Sportster. It's like exactly in between. Uh, definitely a lot less torque than the 1200, but it, well, it's... Well, a regular Sportster is like 43 horsepower or something, if if that. And, and the 1200's like 70-ish, 80 Mm -hmm. yeah i mean it's it is kind of you know it's it's definitely a, a little it's a little i always think of it as a little bit of a step above the v7 and the sportster it's not a it's not i don't think it's close to the 1200 oh shit the sportster 1200 is only uh 58 horsepower oh well it's five short and shaft drive there you go. So it's basically a sports to twelve hundred power, just more or less. Boom. Well, yes, because you know they kind of have the fake fins on the motor because that's a little bit of the styling, but it also has a gigantic radiator on the front of it. The radiator's not that huge. It's hidden very well. It's incorporated into the lines of the bike. Yeah, it follows the lines of the of the of the cradle frame. It's not like the 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 radiator on say a, a Vulcan 1500 or even a Valkyrie where it's like hey here it is deal with it. Yeah. <clears throat> but it's also unapologetically modern in the same way that the Victory Octane was unapologetically mm -hmm. modern. Yes. But at the same time, you know, it still has the teardrop fuel tank it's got some lines off the back it's a soft tail with a proper monoshock on it it's it really is taking it's doing all the things well all the things that the 2018 then all the way back to the 2015 is doing for the bike but it's doing it in a way that's now palatable now it makes perfect sense it's an entry-level cruiser that you're not going to be embarrassed to ride. 
because that's the big problem with entry level cruisers is they're just embarrassing. It's always, well, this is what I've got for now. Like, hey, don't worry. I'm going to upgrade everybody. Don't worry. Like the entry level cruises have this thing of, well, okay, but it's just what I'm dealing with for now, everyone. Don't worry. Like, I can ride with you guys, but like, you know, this isn't like what I'm really about, you know, but we're sport bikes don't have this problem. Ninja 400s are just sort of great out of the box, right? People with with much fancier bikes are happy to come up and go, oh, the Ninja 400, I hear these things are like pretty nimble and cool. And they're like, yeah, it is great, right? Cruisers have this issue of, well, you're, well I mean, you're going to get the Harley, right? I mean, you're going to get the, the, big, the big one, right? And this is, I don't know, for me, this is one that, Okay, you might aspire to something else after this, but you don't necessarily need to be making excuses for this. Like, if you buy a Shadow, even if you buy a Shadow new, part of that bike's identity is that it's a stepping stone. So many people before you have used it as a stepping stone that that's sort of the stigma around that bike. It's like getting a job at White Castle. You're not supposed to be here forever. Right. <laughs> and, 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 you know, maybe you're not supposed to be with this forever, but it's not embarrassing to hold this job through your 20s. Yeah. I don't I really like it. I think this is kind of, it gives you everything you need. It does look really sharp. And it kind of makes a little bit of a statement at the same time. You know, just to own a liquid-cooled cruiser that just kind of gets it done. Well, and it's Suzuki, so it's going to be rock solid. Yeah. And it's kind of... It's in it's in that sort of place where, you know, it's some, it, it kind of fits in that space of... This could be your only bike. You could ride this for, you know, 10 years. But it can also be your first bike. Like, it's... Yeah. What's the displacement on this again? 805. Is it that little? Oh, Mm -hmm. wow. I thought it was a bit bigger than that. Yeah, it's not huge torque, but... So, it's a... It's, yeah, essentially 800cc. Um, It's... Very slightly undersquare. Um and it's liquid cooled. I think it rev it doesn't rev particularly high. I don't it's 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 a weird little thing. What's the what's the wheelbase on it? I wanna see here because it's a bit bigger than you think. This this bike is I want to 65 say, inches. This is a full-size bike. Uh, this is a full-size cruiser, really. Because Yeah, this is 600 pounds. Yeah, because what's the wheelbase on the um, the Vulcan S? Let's see here. Because I, I love the Vulcan S, but um, yeah, it's a little bit shorter, more around 60 inches, 62. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's noticeably a shorter wheelbase. Um, the Vulcan S is fine. I love, I like the Vulcan S, but Kawasaki with their mid range sort of cruiser decided to go towards the smaller end, use the 650 motor, kind of make it more of a, a bike for, for shorter, smaller people. 
Whereas this is still kind of a big, bigger, chunky. It this is a lot more like the philosophy of the old like eight hundred, nine hundred Vulcans. Yeah. Which is, I think, I don't know how many other bikes besides maybe the Scout are really doing that in the market right now. I can't think of another one. The mid displacement cruiser is a is a rare beast. Yeah. I guess there's the Street 750. Yeah. But we won't go there. There's the Shadow, but <laughs> the Shadow's really down on the power. Yeah, if you think about it, it's a category killer. What what else is in mid-displacement in cruisers that has these looks? I, I guess you could say the Scout's a mid-displacement cruiser at only 1,200, but it's when you think about value for money, it's not even close. Well, there's there's only two other bikes I can think of. One is the Sportster 883, which at this point is a fossil. And the other is the Star Bolt. Oh, right, the Star Bolt. Which is essentially a slightly more modern 883. Yeah, but for just $1,000 more here, you're getting so much more in the C50, I feel. I think so too. Even though it costs more money, it's it's a better value. I think you're gonna stick with it longer. And again, you're just worried about that monthly payment. So the monthly payment between seventy two hundred and the eighty five, it's it's not it's you know. I like this. It's been a while since a best bike in the world has been a a, a sensible like sort of American market bike. Yeah. This is definitely a mature ride. Well, yes, yes and no. It's it's for the younger rider who's mature beyond his years already. I mean, it kind of is a little bit of a diet vodkatina, vodkatini. Yeah. But, <laughs> well, okay, but uh, I could feel cool on one of these. Well, uh, it's a whiskey and diet coke. Whiskey and di- whiskey and diet coke is a very good way to describe this. Okay, there we go. Took me a while. I took a few tries, but I think I got there. We got there. Okay, are we ready to move to worst bike? Let's do it. Okay. And the worst bike in the world this week is the Royal Enfield. Taurus. Ooh, okay. All right. I have discovered a deep dark well of super duper really weird Royal Enfield things that never made it to America. So you've heard of this bike before. It's the Royal Enfield Bullet Diesel. It was called the Royal Enfield Taurus. I never did that big of a deep dive on this thing. And it is a horrendous train wreck. The likes of which we have like rarely seen before. So in the eighties in India, diesel was about half the cost of petrol or gasoline. 
So for whatever crazy reason, Roy Enfield decided to make a variant of the Bullet 500, changing the, the front down tube of the frame very slightly and otherwise keeping the rest of the bike the same. And they got a weird, a weird like Italian company or something called, um, let me look this up here. Graves Lombardini, yeah, in Italy, to make this 325cc single-cylinder diesel motor. No turbo, no special anything, intercoolers, anything, just a super-duper basic single-cylinder. Now, you would think, okay, it's India, it's the 80s, it's super cheap fuel. This would be a fantastic hit, especially when you think about with diesels, you can pour just vegetable oil or anything vaguely combustible in there, right? This this must have taken the country by storm because this thing was eight because again diesel's already half the price this was able to get 85 kilometers per liter which i haven't done the conversion math on but it's a lot uh that is uh 85 <laughs> that's like 220 miles per gallon it's a i don't think it's that much but it's a lot it so now it's in that range it's very impressive so you would think oh okay this is this is india this is the 80s well that's the thing india in the 80s was different the only people that could afford this were insanely rich by stand like India is still a developing economy. And in the 80s, it was really developing. Okay. So. 200. Sorry. Okay. Because this. I wasn't far. I was 10% off. Okay. That's a win. Whatever. All right. Because this is a diesel, it was more expensive than the Bullet 500. So there you go. You had to, so it's like kind of buying a like buying an electric car here right now. You have to pay more up front for fuel and energy savings down the road. And the Indian 80s economy was just not up to that. So some rich people bought them and now they only exist like way out in the middle of nowhere in India is where you see them. Let's keep examining why they're only popular in the middle of nowhere in India to this day. What do you okay? So this was this was the lowest displacement uh engine engined uh, or lowest displacement Royal Enfield bike in India at the time. I want you to guess the power this makes. Did you say it was a 325? 325, yep. A 325 diesel in, oh, in the 80s? 
I'm going to guess like two and a half. It's better than that. It's six and a half. Oh, that, that's actually not bad. That's now yeah. six and a half. You would I mean, think, which okay, is still terrible, but we're somewhere in the, in the terms of maybe being able to do something in traffic, except how much does it weigh? Exactly. It weighs just what a regular bullet 500 weighs, which is like 400 pounds or 380 pounds or something like that. It just can't get out of its own way. So you've got it's the you've acceleration. Got so you've got like a 450 pound bike with like scooter one, two, power. With like one, one two, two, five scooter power. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's always kind of been the thing. Like, yes, it's great in the apocalypse, but. Or, you know, in the post-apocalypse, but like low displacement diesels have a really big problem with power. Like yeah. all the benefits of diesel work fantastically when you scale it up. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. So moving on with the problems, because there well, are also, many. Also, just aesthetically, it does kind of look a little bit like a mad science experiment. Oh, we'll get to that. Visually, <laughs> this thing is a fucking disaster. Because all they did was they cut out. It looks like they took existing Royal Enfield 500 frames. They cut the down tube and then just inserted this weird... It looks like an engine guard at the front and that helps take in the engine. And it's, it's, it's just bad because, okay. Anyway, let's No, I got to keep, I got to keep on how I was going. Okay. So yes, it got amazing fuel economy, but it just couldn't get out of its way, which in crazy traffic, whatever. So as we said, it's basically just a regular bullet 500. Otherwise it's got the same bullet five, uh, the same Royal Enfield bullet, uh, four speed gearbox and, and all these things. This engine was so bad and so unusable that a lot of people found a weird Chinese V-twin diesel that would fit in its place. And then in markets outside of India, the bike was officially sold with that Chinese V-twin. This was happening in the late 80s, early 90s. And that that Chinese V-twin was of such poor quality that then... They found a company called Suraj uh, in Punjab, and they made a third version of it called the Royal Enfield Suraj, built by this tractor company with a, yet a third engine option. This is sort of like, this is kind of <laughs> like, when dad used to go to Hong Kong all the time and realized that for like 50 cents, he could buy VCDs off of the vendors in the markets and often get films that weren't available in Japan. But it turns out that Home Alone 3 
not only not being a great movie, after being recorded onto mini cassette in the theater as a bootleg and then transferred and digitized onto a VCD is not a lot of fun to watch. It's not quite what you were promised. Well, okay, so this brings us to what killed this bike, because they didn't sell very many of them, but they made it for a surprisingly long time. Like, these were available for something like 22 years in their various different engine formats. What do you think finally killed this? Was it the cost of diesel? Nope. Okay. I didn't think that would be the answer. It is the most unlikely thing that would ever, ever kill a vehicle in India. But it killed this one. Hmm. Emissions. (laughs) Really? Ah. So by the time that these things are being made by this weird tractor company, it had its third version of the engine, which was just as bullshit and underpowered and everything. By the time like 1998 or something like that or 2002, whatever, rolled around, even it couldn't even pass Indian emissions. Apparently, these things roll coal like you can't fucking believe. Just giant black smoke everywhere you go. And then there was another huge problem with it. In order to for this little 325 to produce that almost 7 horsepower or 6.5 horsepower, it's a really high compression. As you said, you really can't get a diesel to do much until you up it or unless you just uh, – and, and, and because the way it burns the fuel, it's got to have high compression. So it's this little, little 325 kind of tuned up a little bit because it has no turbo to help it. It has no intercool. It's just got to – it's got to do it all the old-fashioned way. And it just fucking shakes so bad that the Indian market thought it was an uncomfortable ride. We are talking about a society which is very used to having three or four people on the same bike. Thought this was an unpleasant ride. Too, just too much for them. No thank you. It's just an absolute bone shaker. Apparently, owners of the bike after months, would sell them complaining of joint pain in their shoulders. (laughs) I'm not making this up. (laughs) This is a motorcycle so terrible that even the Indian market went, we can't make this work. And this this is a place that will make fucking anything work these are people that are just born mechanically inclined like i've said on this show before your average indian housewife can take apart and rebuild the carburetors on these things blindfolded like a marine with their rifle right and this society could not make this motorcycle work what a disaster yeah 
Well, I, I have to imagine this must have been like the most easy. This engine must have been breathing so easy as well. Yeah. Like it might just have a header on it and that's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um It's also weird with it being expensive just because, like, that's not, you know how, you know, every modern cafe racer has, you know, the gap. Well, it's expensive because they had to import the engines. Royal Enfield wasn't making the engines, and they sure as shit weren't about to tool up to make their own motors for it. So which, also just meant, the, yeah, which also meant they would have to pay the import tax mm-hmm. on all of them as well. Yeah. Yeah, and it's all pre-unit construction as well. Ooh, it's yeah. a disaster everywhere you cut it. <laughs> it's just a fucking disaster. I... It's not without like its charm and sort of being a super weird thing, right? Apparently, they were very easy to work on. They were very straightforward as far as the little diesel thing goes. And of course, you could pour just about any fucking thing in them, right? And well, Honda already had, well, Honda did a similar flex fuel thing in Brazil at the same time. Still are, yeah. But. Well, uh, yeah, that's well. They they uh, this has been compared to that bike in terms of you know companies trying to do a similar thing. Uh, apparently, this did get even better mileage than that bike, but at what cost? Exactly. <laughs> well, the cost of just complete like usability, right? Uh, what can you do with this thing? So the only place it still exists is a very, very rural India where you're not in traffic. That's where people can still manage to use them, and it still sort of makes sense. You can get up to 35, 40 miles an hour-ish, right? And, but you know they're on really bumpy, horrible roads where you wouldn't want to be going any faster anyway, and you don't have to fight anyone for acceleration or maneuvering around things and you can just run it on whatever and it'll run forever. And so in that it makes a lot of sense. I guess if yeah, if the semi fuel tanker only comes into your village once every 90 days, it might be a cool thing to own. Yeah, this is sort of like a an engine that would have been fantastic in some sort of three-wheeled application. And then marketed to to farmers and stuff outside of the cities, but as a motorcycle in the cities, uh, a commuter and and gas saving and all that. It's just this is like the sort of thing that like a teenager in the heart of the outback would ride because his dad would think it was the coolest thing ever because he's like it runs on the same fuel the grader uses. Yeah. <laughs> We're all set. But, yeah. (laughs) It's interesting to find a vehicle... Because we find motorcycles that miss their mark in terms of the market here or in the UK or in Japan. But to find one that really bombs in a completely different world, right? 
Yeah. It's something else. Yeah, it bombs in a place that makes anything work. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, it bombs in a place that not only made it work, but actually loves it, enjoys the Bullet 500. <laughs> I so think that's a go. good yeah. note to end it on. Okay. So let's put a little bit of a break in here, and we'll be back in just a moment. And we are back. Okay. So before we get into the next segment, we're going to do a little bit of an announcement, which is you may have caught on to it already with things we've said in this episode, but we have another movie commentary coming out for you guys at some point soon-ish. It might be for Thanksgiving. It might be for the Christmas break. It might be in between then, but we are recording and releasing at some point this before the end of the year. Another movie commentary for The Road Warrior. The most, one of the most motorcycly motorcycle movies ever. Quietly, really heavy on the motorcycles. The most motorcycly, non, not explicitly motorcycle movie. Yes. Yeah. I mean, if you want to, like, the most motorcycle movie is probably faster. Right. <laughs> but but yes, for, for movies which are not expressly just solely about motorcycles, this is really heavy and it's really enjoyable. So if you haven't seen The Road Warrior for a while, go ahead and buy it on Amazon or whatever. You can watch it basically everywhere. It's going to cost you like four dollars, but whatever. Totally worth it. Totally holds up. It's great. It's, and here's the thing it's as good as you remember it was. It definitely is. Okay. So, moving on to our next category, we're going to talk about winter upgrades to your bike. So, we've got a nice weekend coming up here, and I'm probably going to be scooting around and doing some things, but I've already put the gold wing up. And there's some things the Goldwing's going to get over the winter this year. She's going to get some new grips and little things here and there. And as I was thinking about that, I thought, okay, for a lot of people, especially those in, let's say, like Ohio, Pennsylvania, Indiana, where it's it's getting properly cold. You right? poor bastards. Yeah. Anywhere where there's lake effect or, you know, coastal East Coast, right? It's 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 just getting fucking cold. And your bikes are going up. They're going into the garage. They're going whatever. But that doesn't mean that you're done messing with them, right? There's things to do. So let's think of a list of great you know, upgrades you can do during the winter. So... When I think of upgrades to bikes, I don't I don't immediately go to engine upgrades. I kind of like to leave all the motors stock. I'm really not into performance parts. I'm really not into doing exhaust. But maybe that's a thing. If we were going to think about 
it, let, let's start where we wouldn't normally start. If we're going to think about performance upgrades. Well, let's talk about the easiest, best performance upgrade you should definitely always do. Uh-huh. This is a great time. If you have somewhere to actually store the wheels, change your tires. Everyone is available. If you have a place to store your bike, get the wheels off, take them to the shop. This is the best time with no fucking around, no waiting, no scheduling and appointments to just get your tires changed. That's true. You have all the time to take those wheels off, leave the bike just on a jack or something and strap it down so it's not going anywhere. If you just take the wheels in without the rest of the bike they'll just do it while you wait 15 20 30 minutes max and it's gonna be a third of the cost that it normally is to get your tires changed so go ahead and order those tires from revzilla or wherever i personally i still kind of like to buy tires in person and know what the date on them is I'm even okay getting tires that are a year old, a year and a half old. But oh, if I order tires online and they're already three years old, I'm pissed. Because realistically, you're looking at five years before they're going to start just wearing ridiculously fast. Like think about it. Like like the Goldwing's a great example. When I bought it, the guy was like, Oh, this tire's only got like 300 miles on it. And I'm like, yeah, but it's seven years old. And that tire lasted what? A thousand miles. Yeah. Before it just totally squared off. Like it was hopeless. And it wasn't fun to ride on either. Right. Oh, so yeah, yeah. Now is a great time. You'll get a good price on tires. You'll get a good price on tires that aren't old. You'll get you'll get them done fast. That that is a good one. Um so suspension's not as hard to do as people think, right? I suspension is generally a few bolts, right? <laughs> you know? If you're uh, your rear suspension, right? If you've, especially if you have dual rear shock, du- dual rear shocks, is there anything fucking easier to change than rear shocks? Yeah, you know, once you solve the problem of how to get the bike up off the ground and supported, it's extremely easy. Well, right, you just change one shock at a time. It's this is not a complicated thing, and that's two bolts per shock. You get the thing off. It's essentially like taking apart a bicycle pump. Yeah. Um. So let, let's think about now uh, quality of life improvements with your bike. So if you wanted to fit that wind sh- that windscreen or a full fairing, an aftermarket fairing, now's a great time to do that. In fact, you might even realize after fitting it. And then taking the bike for a test ride, like, well, maybe I've got a couple more weeks I can ride this thing now that I've put this fairing or this windshield on it. I, I'm such a big fan of of bikes with wind protection. I, 
because it's not even just for the cold. We discovered on our Southwest trip, which we'll be talking about next week's episode. It's the hairdryer effect. You can ride through not just a lot more cold than you think. You can ride through a lot more heat than you think. Yes. It's, and it's equally comparable. Mm-hmm. If you're riding in 110 degree weather, you need that wind protection just as much as you need it at 15 degrees. I mean, yeah, we were riding through the desert. What was it getting up to? Like 112 in, at times? Uh, I think the highest was like 109 or so that I, well, I'm only. I thought 112 was their highest, I'm, but we I'm, were averaging around 107, I think. I was based, I'm, I was only going off of the highly questionable uh, thermometer on the Gucci. So I don't know if that was accurate or not, but I think the highest I saw was 109. I I just looked at a uh, like a Google temp. What's the temperature in the area at one of the gas stations? And I I thought I remembered it saying like it's 112, and I was like, okay, I'm not gonna look at this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I think. Do you, do you remember that gas like, station? If I don't see you, the temperature, it can't see me. Do, do you remember <laughs> that gas station where we saw the guys coming back from Sturgis? Yeah, and Mexican hat. Exactly. When we were going through Mexican hat, I think Google told me it was 112. <laughs> I did like just get my jacket off and my helmet off and it was like stripped down to like t-shirt and jeans. And I was just like, let me just stretch. And as I was stretching, I like walked out into the sun and I said, nope, staying under the <laughs> <laughs> staying under the cover. <laughs> it was so hot. It was, it was so great though. Well, okay, we'll talk about that more. But yeah, fitting fitting a big windshield. I mean, think about that. That's a great one. Again, because it's just not the riding season, you're gonna get a great price on one. Or you might be able to Craigslist one for almost nothing. And you've got all the time in the world to just fit it and fit it properly and get it all adjusted right instead of just trying to fit it hastily in some weekend or paying a Harley Davidson dealer way too much to do it. Right. This is a good time to do that. I'm a big fan of just aftermarket fairings. I think there's a great there's a lot of bikes that take aftermarket fairings really really well. There's a lot of weird like Vetter fairings from the 80s that if you just paint them to match your bike, I think would look super cool on a lot of modern nakeds. Vetter did a lot of really really nuts like little half fairings and short pointy things that would like go on like I think a modern Z900 super duper well. It's worth experimenting with. But well hell, we took that stupid fucking sportster fairing and put it on the W650. And well, that was just a straight windshield, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, we yeah had the windshield, to, yeah. yeah. We had to get creative with that mounting, but it worked. It made the steering a little sus, but well, only over seventy-five miles an hour. <laughs> well, actually, we got it up to about a hundred. Oh, we but... definitely did. <laughs> but I said the steering started getting weird with it over seventy-five. It was great up to there. It was. It actually improved the fuel economy as well. Yeah, 
Yeah, you would be amazed what just a simple windshield will do. It'll up your fuel economy two, three miles per gallon minimum, I would say. Mm -hmm. But anyways, I think the other thing to put into the... I think there's two other elements we need to talk about with this. One is... If you're super into riding and you've only got one bike, it's hard to to have the uh what what's the term it's the um it's hard to have the delayed gratification to like take your bike off the road for a few days in the middle of summer in peak riding season to do a job properly right and if it's if it's cold as balls winter is the perfect time to do all the things that you should have done and to really get it done And that's something you should really think about. But in order to actually do that, you need to make sure that you have a proper workspace where you can do that. Yes. Upgrading your workspace is essentially upgrading your bike. It's not upgrading your current bike. It's upgrading all your future bikes as well. Right. So... I, yeah, I was I was having a conversation like this with Doctor Mike because he bought that scooter and we we had a whole day of doing things uh, last week. Uh, part of it was like putting together a new bedroom for my daughter, and part of it was putting um, fixing the roof on my shed. And we 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 just had a whole day of just constant project after project. And at the end of the evening. We were looking. Uh, we needed to um, do some adjustments on his trailer for him to take his scooter home. And of course, it was easy. We just walked to the shed, and I grabbed all these rails of sockets and and things, and we just brought them over, and it was easy. And at a certain point, he's like, "Oh, I I've got to have it this side, on, this size on this side, and the same size on the other side to do this." And I'm like, "Mike, it's fine. I've got six and twelve point, short and long." Like both sizes, like what what combination of wrenches and whatever do you want? It's all right here. And I said, you know, at some point it's worth spending the three to four hundred dollars on the Sears Craftsman comprehensive automotive set. And Mike's like, I've got tools. There's nothing wrong with my tools. I'm like, right. There's nothing wrong with your tools, Mike. Totally get it. But I have my set of just whatever tools that I can loan to people or that I keep, you know, you've seen, I've got a bunch of tools that I keep in my kitchen drawer and whatever. And I've got like another little, like small rolling set of tools of like the ones that I'll use in the driveway. And then I've got like the tools that never leave my property. Like my, all my super duper craftsmen, everything comprehensive that. So Maybe this is the Christmas where you treat yourself to the, like, you know, the 500 piece craftsman set. And, you know, dad made huge fun of me when I bought it for myself, like eight years ago, or whatever. And he's like, what are you ever going to do with this size? And what are you going to do with this size? And the amount of times I've run into a project where I'm working on 
like one of your weird Italian bikes or scooters or whatever. And, and that size that he's like, no one ever uses these. And it's come in handy because I had exactly the weird thing that I never would have thought to buy otherwise. Who would ever need a seven mil long socket? Well, if you own a Gootsy, you probably do. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. What, the first time that we took your, your Norge apart, how many times were there that we went for some of my bits, right? Because that's when all of my craftsman stuff was sitting in uh, in dad's garage for like six months before I moved house, right? And we we frequently went to my tools. And that's when dad started to start. That's when dad started to shut up about my <laughs> tools. Well, also in his like 4,000 square feet of garage mahal. There still wasn't even two quarter inch uh, socket uh, drivers, uh, two three eighths or two half inches. Right. Like, you know what? Oh, well, there I- is now. There wasn't then. <laughs> there is now, to, to be fair to dad. But yeah. So in, in upgrading your space, right? I don't think that anyone needs an especially large bench. But you do need to have shit organized, and you do need something with drawers for your tools. And as we've said before, you can never have too many lights. Mm. Never. There's no such thing as too much light in your garage. There's no such thing. I put in a fucking disco ball. I don't give a shit. Just anything. Uh, the, the, the new little uh, gadget gizmo that I'm seeing are these little lights. They look like, um, you remember those like everlasting gobstoppers from Willy Wonka? They've kind of got like bits sticking out of them, right? Yeah. They look like that, but with magnets on the end of each. So you can put, you can stick them to the frame of whatever you're working on and position the light where, yeah. I, I, although I think they need to do two things. I think the magnets and the LEDs need to be, like in all directions. So wherever you stick it, it's just this light bomb that goes off in every direction. Anyway. uh, The other thing I will say is based on where you're living, especially if you're just going to put a shed up, you need to have some sort of heating solution or you need to ensure that you're able to comfortably work without gloves. And I have a good barometer for this. If you've been stuck on a family vacation off in a yurt in the middle of nowhere and you haven't jerked off for a week, you know, you're, you need to let it out in the dead of winter. It needs to be warm enough that you'd settle for that space. So like what I've done for my shed is I've re- so when Dr. Mike and I were fixing the roof on it, um, I've did a shit ton of spray insulation all over it. Oh, yeah. And now it, it finally holds a decent temperature with the with the uh, the space heater in it. Now, I still need to. Well, well, I'm still lazy because I've just got a big metal plate. Well, actually, I don't even use the metal plate anymore. I just stick the. Uh, I stick the space heater on top of the motor, the the Harbor Freight motorcycle lift because how's it going to catch fire, 
right? And I just leave it there forever, right? It doesn't matter. I go out if I'm gonna if I'm gonna work on it, which I've done a couple nights now. Um, you turn on the space heater, leave, and then come back in forty five minutes, and it's all fine. And again, it's not warm, it's not toasty, but it's not unbearable. I can't. I I can go out there at midnight, one in the morning, right? Where it's it's getting pretty cold now. It's getting down to the twenties, teens, or whatever, and I'm fine to just be working on something at night out there. So great stuff will get you pretty far with that. It turns out, just seal up all your air gaps, and that'll get you pretty far. Mm-hmm. It turns out. Well, this is the other reason why lights are really important, which is if you are a normal person who works a nine to five job, you don't get home until it's dark in the winter. Right. And if you can only go outside for 20, 30 minutes at a time, it takes you 20 minutes to get your fucking bearings. So unless you can do two, three hours of work at a time and be comfortable in doing it, you're not working at all through the winter. An oil change is going to take you a week. Especially when you're juggling everything else in your life and you're super depressed because you you never get to go outside when the sun is shining. So my big 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 winter upgrade that i recommend for everyone i think your one with the tires was a really great one like let's start at basic places you know suspension is great too but that's kind of like pie in the sky for a lot of people i suggest for a lot of people make this year the year that you replace your brake lines with steel braided lines and i suggest this for a couple reasons one it will make your brakes feel like the most expensive awesome brembo brakes ever right there's so much in just replacing those old fucked out lines also it will force you to replace your brake fluid which if you're really honest with yourself needs changing right yeah then on top of that whilst you're sitting there and you've gotten the bike and you've put on a lift or you've jacked it up or you've done whatever and you're you've getting there you've you've completed this job well there's no way you're going to replace your brake lines and then not replace your brake pads you're just going to go online and go oh they're only eight bucks okay I've put new lines in. I'll put I'll put new pads on. Okay. And then there's no way that you're going to replace your brake lines, replace your brake pads, and then not change your oil. There's no there's just no way. You're going to change your oil after that. Unless you're on a Gucci Norge. Well, <laughs> you may think I've got another thousand miles. I'm gonna wait it out. <laughs> okay, barring that extremely rare situation. <laughs> and and then there's then after you've changed the oil, there's no way you're not going to look at the bike and go, "Hmm. I need to wipe down every inch of this bike." 
right? There's no way you're not going to, right? You're just going to clean it. You're going to give it some polish and you're going to get out that wax and you're going to rub it down. You're going to do those things. And then you're going to look at the chain. And then you're going to look at the chain. Exactly. And it's going to be those dominoes falling. And I, I think the brake lines is the perfect place to start because it's so much bang for buck in terms of the performance you're going to get out of your bike. Well, it's it's very close to, especially if you've got an older bike, if if the bike's, you know, 10, 15 years old, doing that swap on worn brake lines to steel braided, it's going to feel premium like new tires feel premium. Yeah. Yeah, when you put new tires and a new chain on a bike, you swear it has 10 more horsepower. And the brake lines kind of do that too. You you know that that thing, that difference between a bike feeling kind of old and sloppy and new and tight? You'd be amazed how much of that is the brake line. Mm-hmm. Just that 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 brake response is kind of part of that new bike tightness feeling, right? Yeah, I highly recommend it. So, so where are we at? Our, our top, our top ones are replace your tires, replace your brake lines, buy, treat yourself to some new tools, and upgrade your workspace. This, this is kind of like the top of our list. Yeah, whether it's a shed or a garage, trick it out, make it warm, get lots of lights. And make it just a generally fun place to be. Yeah, don't make, underestimate just buying a new radio or whatever it is, you know? A new Bluetooth speaker, whatever. Yeah, go on Craigslist. See if you can find some old Playboy prints. Put them up. Yes. Go wild. Go wild. <laughs> I That's a little bit more realistic for like those of us that are divorced. I mean, hey, maybe the upgrade you need is to get divorced. So, <laughs> so you can convert your living room into your garage. As someone who has recently had multiple vehicles in their living room and watched races with their kids sitting on them. <laughs> Not something that would have happened while I was still married. <laughs> Not even close. Okay. Uh, all right. Let's let's put a little another break in here because I need to go relieve myself. And then I think we'll come back with another topic and email. So that'll round this out pretty good. Let's hit the button. <laughs> And we're back. And after 20 minutes of talking more about Road Warrior, we're ready to get back on track. Uh, So we are now going to talk about not mature rides, not immature rides, but dork bikes. Yes. And when we say dork bikes, we don't mean hipster bullshit. We don't mean people... Riding weird shit to make themselves seem cool to others. 
These are genuinely dork bikes where they're weird and they're kind of fantastic, but you wouldn't ride one unless it spoke to you in a very weird way. Right. Like authentically weird bikes. Right. We've we've covered the mature ride and we've covered the immature ride. This is the dork ride. This is the nerd bike. And I'm just going to say three of the bikes on my list are bikes that I've ridden and owned, perhaps. Okay. <laughs> I've ridden one of them on my list. So why, why don't you start with one first, Swigs? What have you got? All right. So especially in North America, if you're not using it for anything other than transportation, this is a hardcore dork bike. The Ubco 2x2. Strong. Okay. This is... Okay. I'm going to reveal one of mine at the same time because these are two very opposite ends of the same category. Okay? Is it the Subcategory of nerd bike. Is this the new by any chance? No. Okay. But that's a strong contender as well. I'm going to put the NC700 in here. And these are opposite ends of the spectrum of the subcategory of nerd bike that I call the pocket protector. (laughs) These are so, these are bikes so fantastically useful. So built for purpose and function and really nothing else. Right. Right. And um, when I say the NC700, I'm not talking about the X or anything, just the regular one with with the DCT with just just the plain old like 2015 NC700 DCT and then the Ebco 2x2. Very opposite ends of the spectrum, but like a pocket protector, it's not necessarily a good look. It's nothing to be seen on, but you cannot deny the function. Yeah. You're like that kid who's writing with a fountain pen who has that piece of that piece of cloth like glove that just covers his pinky and the the far side of his hand oh, yeah, so he doesn't yeah. smudge the ink. Yeah, it's you're going deep into the weeds and into absurdly practical territory. And once you're there, you just kind of own it. Or not. But it doesn't <laughs> matter because that's where you are. Yeah. The so the the Epco 2x2 is a vehicle. Well, again, most of our listeners are gonna know, but we have some listeners plenty of listeners we've picked up since you bought and lost yours it's a i didn't lose it it was stolen okay it 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 was lost to you Uh, yes it's a electric bike it's what nine horsepower eight horsepower oh not even maybe less it's like four is it that low okay but it's got a great low enough that in colorado you can get an under 50 cc scooter tag for it as opposed to 
properly registering it. Mm. Well, that means it's less than five and a half, I think. Anyway, uh, so it, but its party trick is that it has a motor in the front and a motor in the back, which in the snow is fucking awesome. Well, yeah, I when the first you time I literally learned, tried to crash it, the first like I did the day after I bought it, you're like, "There's a patch of ice." Yeah, <laughs> let's go wide open on that. Well, no, I went for a patch of ice, and then I twisted the handlebars and the throttle, and I tried to to make the back like fly out, and it wouldn't. It just adjusted, and it gripped, and it went. It was great. The two-wheel drive, and it's not like it has like weird ABS. It's just that with two-wheel drive, it's surprisingly difficult to get that to get a bike out of shape like that. Yeah. Because you'd think like driving a rear-wheel drive car on ice, like the front would just go flying, you know, and you'd lose it. But no, the front just kept wanting to go and the back kept wanting to go. And it went, all right, here we go. And it just found any – with those chunky tires, it found something to grip on. And I was like, okay, I'm sold. But any ice, any slush, any mud, any anything. And it is – low horsepower but it's high torque so it turns out this is amazing off-road and its off-road range is 30 to 40 miles which off-road is a huge distance so it turns out this vehicle is wildly useful for things like park rangers for ranchers for all sorts of things like that but if you are just a crazy nerd you cannot deny that for arguably a lot more of the year, it's low power transportation, like the kind of things you would use a small scooter for, but because it's good in the snow, because it's good in the wet, because it's good in all these other things, it's way more useful. If you can swing the seven grand that it costs, well, all of a sudden, you've got this super cool sort of tech little gizmo that you can show off to all your friends and be the king of the nerds. Yeah, I mean, if you need to, like, ford a river, you can just, like, pick it up and carry it on your shoulders as well. It's or just go through the river. It's electric. Well, I don't know if it's that well sealed. You may, you may need to do some aftermarket uh caulking around it and sealing it up but in theory yeah so so the nc 700 so the same it's it's a it's a flip it's 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 similar yes it's gas but it's like hey this gets insane mileage this is insanely practical this has built-in storage this has a super comfortable seating position this is dual clutch it is out of the box, one of the best commuter motorcycles ever. There's just no getting around it. Everyone says it's soulless and it's no fun or whatever. But if I'm going to own a motorcycle in New York City, NC700, very close to the top of my list. If I'm working at a tech company in, a, in an urban area, Get yourself an NC700. You're a fucking hero. Right? Yeah. Unless you're going electric or unless you're going... Um, 
uh, scooter transmission blanking. CVT. CVT. I've had a few beers. It's yes. okay. Uh, yes. But unless you're going electric or CVT, like NC700 is kind of a winner. Well, the thing that it's really It's also old puts enough it... to be kind of a little bit in that vaporwave category. Perhaps. It's the in thing, the time. It's the, the right time for and place. me that really makes it a nerd bike, though, is the incorporated storage. And here's the reasoning. People think that nerds are into tech. And that's not necessarily true. I mean, it is true, but really what nerds are into is being surprised by innovation. Nerds love a reveal of like, this is why nerds love hacks because hacks are an exploitation, right? So if you show up on an NC 700 and then you blow their minds by opening up the frunk because they just, first of all, probably because they're not motorcyclists, didn't realize that was even a possibility. And then explain that it was made possible by making the engine flat to open up that room so it's not airbox or anything else. All of a sudden their minds go, holy shit, three things that I didn't even know were things were just revealed in front of me. And nerds think that kind of shit's really fucking cool. It's the same way that we are embarrassingly really, really in love with top-loading VCRs. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's just charming. Right. So, so I, yeah, okay. Let's let's move on to uh, another one. G- give us another nerd bike. Okay, this is probably the most hardcore nerd fetishist bike of all time. The Honda DNO one. Okay, I don't have a, a, a necessarily a, a companion one on this one, but explain to people that didn't hear the episode where the DNA one was worst bike. It was a strong worst <laughs> bike in the world. Okay. Uh, it, deal, ex- explain to people one, why it's, it's a terrible thing, but a, but a very charming thing. So the DNO one is sort of, if you look at the bike itself, it's sort of like an NC 700 platform. A little bit. But it's more cruisery. I'm pretty sure it's the same frame. Maybe. Who knows? But the way that it works is the DNO one, it it it's all about the transmission. And it gets really weird because essentially the DNO one has a forklift transmission in it. It's hydrostatic. Yes. And for those of you who don't know, and should you really need to go look this up because it's going to blow your mind. The way that it works is essentially there is a fluid-driven motor in the hub of the rear wheel. And there's two 
fluid lines that go to it that are essentially imagine that the motor on this the final drive of this bike is a reverse water wheel it's essentially what's going on it's it it's bizarre and then we got to talk about shift plates and all sorts of weird things but you know you need to do the research on this if you don't know what it is but it is essentially a forklift transmission attached to a motor and uh, it it's complex almost just for complex sake it's 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 a marking- dork bike because you you own it just so you can have this conversation with people about the human friendly transmission. <sighs> that it so it's uh, this. They were thinking about putting this on the Valkyrie, right? Oh, I mean, it's it's so not a good idea. History. It's, it's terrible. Not a, yeah, it's horrendous. It's it's a nightmare. The, yeah, it's it's <laughs> like a nerd owning like a mini like buying a mini disc stereo system it's just to have it just because okay it's we like tried own- and failed it was a swing and a miss but it's nice to have this little artifact of of innovation it's and to like, own a piece of it it's like owning a boombox with the with a cassette to mini disc recording capability. Right. Like this is another level of insane. Mm-hmm. I agree. Okay. But if you own it, you're gonna fucking love it. Like if you are willing to pull the trigger, this is your baby. Well, it better be. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So not not too far away from that. I've got one here. And this is sort of the the dad jeans dad joke of motorcycles. We've talked about it before on the show. It must be said. The Suzuki Bergman 650 executive. Oh, absolutely. The, uh, <laughs> there could be no dorkier, nerdier thing. Because it's got albeit on the lower side, motorcycle-sized wheels. It's got a motorcycle engine, motorcycle power, but it also provides all those scooter conveniences. And then to take it to the next level, it has those things like the electronic adjustable mirrors and the stereo system and the heated grips and... Just all the, the trip computer, it has the pre-selected ratios on the CVT, so it's like a manual transmission as well. It has things to play with. And so if you are a true through-and-through nerd or dork and really give no fucks about what people think about you, all you just see all these pluses to it over a regular motorcycle. I'm actually a really big fan and I find it super charming. Anything electrically motorized that is within arm's reach, big plus for me. Right. <laughs> yeah. So the, the the Bergman is 
like it's very dad jeans. It's it's very dad joke. Like you love the charm of it. You love the functionality of it. You love the way it works. But everyone else is like lame. Because the thing about dad jokes is the reason they're dad jokes is they're jokes that work. They're, they just have no edge to them whatsoever. What's the lack of edge that it's your own embarrassment that makes them so fun? Well, well sort of. No, but like, you know, like uh, what makes a joke work is it takes an expectation and turns it on its head. Or it, it shows you something that you thought you knew and presents it in a different light. Dad jokes do that. They just have no edge to them whatsoever. They're just super clean and safe. And that's what the Bergman is. Like, it does change your perception of what a bike can or could or would or maybe might be. It just has no aggression or edge to it whatsoever. In a lot of ways, if you look at the Bergman and you look at all the insane technology that goes into it, and then the modest motor... And the way that it rides, and when you really examine the whole thing, and you take all the time to ingest what it is, it's sort of like the the Norm Macdonald uh, moth joke. Okay. Like, it's this long story with all these intricacies and all these subtleties. And in the end, you realize, oh, this is like a a 40 horsepower scooter it's got some wind protection and some storage it's like it's it, like 51 but yeah. <laughs> but like it's it's like it's a 20 minute joke with a really dumb punchline but it's fantastic because you went on this wild journey to get to this dumb punchline yeah there's also sort of a um a captain of your own ship feeling with it but it's more like captain of the command deck, like sort of Star Trek feeling of writing it because it has a, the suspension on it's not good. It, <laughs> there is a very sort of floaty boat feeling to it, having ridden one. Captain of your own windsurfer. It's, yeah. yeah I... How many of our audience know what a windsurfer is? I don't know, but imagine that the USS Enterprise was not flying through space, but flying through atmosphere. That's how wavy it is. I don't know if that works, but I think we should just move on. It's not the Enterprise is not an especially great aerodynamic shape. <laughs> anyway, okay, so. Moving on, I've got what I think is the ultimate nerd motorcycle for the third and last one on my list. What have you still got? I've got three more. Okay, hit hit hit, hit us. Okay, next bike, Moto Guzzi Norge twelve hundred GT. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, what haven't we said about the Norge? We've said everything there is to say about it. It still makes the list. I agree. But if we're going to sum it up in a few lines here, or um, there's no reason to own the Norge 
again, this is sort of a, a functionality bike there, because no one knows what it is. It's really just a hassle to explain to people what it is. It's it's something you only buy because you were just on a journey for something weird to begin with, right? It, it has weird looks. It has great functions. There's a lot going on under the hood, but on the surface, nobody gets it. It's like it's like the it's like the motorcycle version of some sort of obscure deep like 12 part like 12 hour anime. I was I have anime in my notes here. Okay. Like the first no it's like the first time you you look at the bike from in profile and it kind of looks it looks really weird where it's like is this like really badly trying to look like a sport tour or is this a sport is this a touring bike that's trying to look very very slightly touring and then you get it even has it. notes of adventure bike in the look a little bit yeah but then you get on the bike and once you get on to the bike for the first time and you're just staring down like at the instrument panel and there's like all the weird star-shaped like pieces of plastic coming up off of the dash you're like am i in some sort of like anime rocket ship what the fuck is going on none of this makes sense it was weird when i looked at it i got on the bike it's still really weird and then you go off and you're like oh this thing's really torque and it revs really fast it gets up to speed it like it shakes and rattles like a really ill-tempered v-twin and it's got the shaft jack just like pulling the bike to the side and lifting the rear up and and it it's this temperamental bitch but it feels really good the whole time yeah well again this is like trying to explain why this bike is great is like trying to explain to someone why this weird obscure anime series is great underneath the hood there's all these reasons it works and it and it, it subverts your expectations and it's so much deeper but because it's the, the outlaw star of motorcycles because the because the packaging is just so odd are None you of not your friends give me are credit ever, for that. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> Did I not name? I it? was going to say Cowboy Bebop, but yeah, you, you, of course, Outlaw Star is even another level deeper. Like <laughs> <laughs> it, you'll never, your friends will never watch it. They're never going to watch it. You can tell them every six weeks when you go down to the bar. By the way, have you watched it yet? And they're like, eh, no. <laughs> and they're never going to they're never going they're never going to test ride one they're never going to look for one on craigslist if they're never they're, you have them over at your place and you're like hey do you want to ride by norge and they're like no not really it's just like you're over at your place you're like you guys want to watch cowboy bebop or outlight star and they're like no i mean no 
anything else how about these youtube videos instead how about whatever oh i heard this well i haven't seen that tarantino film yet but the any excuse to watch anything but actually the thing you keep suggesting over and over and over they should but you are a hero when you show up to the campsite with 72 beers right but it's still not going to make a difference. They won't. <laughs> Your friends yeah. will never, they'll never, they'll never get it. All right. What else have you got? Uh, I also have, I'm going to, this may be a bit marginal, but I'm going to say the BMW K1200. I'm going to put this in the Bergman 650 dad jeans category. This is the dad joke, dad jeans, like 40-year-old nerd bike. This is, again, just its function. It, it You get on one and you're like, oh, I didn't think this a 1200 would make power like this. I didn't think it would be fast like this. I would never have thought it would be smooth like this. I never thought it would have the creature comforts this has. But... It's just dad jeans. You're not cool on it. You're just not. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's. Well, also, it was right when inline fours were starting to get slimmer and get more and more race spec and get more aerodynamic. And it looks gigantic. Like, if you look at it today, it looks like a tugboat. Yeah. By modern superbike standards, it's enormous. If you ride it, it's fucking rad. But anything on that K1200 platform, the tours, all of it, it's great. It's a great motor. It's a great frame. But it's all the bodywork is weird and strangely bulbous now. Which I love. Yeah. Maybe... That's one of those like Goldwing type bikes that you can pick up for no money. We may need to buy a K1200 just to fuck around with. I'll tell you what, a K1200 would make a great Mad Max bike. Yeah. No, <laughs> there's no shame in fucking up a K1200. <laughs> okay. It's true. All right. What else you got? Because I think we've each got one more now. I've got one last one. Me too. And this is a, uh, this falls into a niche category of nerd bike, which I'm going to categorize as the sub genre of Simpsons did it. The Kawasaki W650. Okay. I'm with you in that everyone wants their Triumph Bonneville. Everybody wants their now W800. Everybody wants even even there's even people that go CB eleven hundred in this quest for the you know I'll put the 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 nine R the BMW nine RT in this or the nine RT cafe the, this quest for this this R nine or I don't care it's the R nine T yes the, this quest for this 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 classic modern classic sort of bike. Right, I'm getting into this. Oh, I th- uh, my someone buys a bike and they think, well, the modern landscape is Harley owners. I'll subvert that by going retro, but you're really still staying in another mainstream, right? 
And the W650 goes, well, sort of, except I am for all these super, super nerdy reasons, right? This, okay, I love the W650, but in the nerd context, it's a little neckbeard because it's kind of like, well, okay, it's a Bonneville ripoff. And then you have to go, well, actually, it's a it's a cow it's a W one, which is a thing of an A sixty five, which now it's a thing, which is it's a thing of a thing of a thing, and and you trace back why it's more legitimate than even a modern Bonneville, and in the meantime, people's eyes like eight blocks away have glazed over in your explanation of why it's more legitimate. So- I've had this conversation many a time and you do have to in your rehearsed speech count the number of beats between you say between when you say W1 and BSA. You've got to cross that gap really quickly if you actually want to keep people around. And if you don't want to keep people around and get immersed in the conversation, then you just say, when they say, oh, that's a sweet triumph, you just say, yeah, thanks. Those are the branching paths of any right. sane person that owns this bike. Okay. I have the nerdiest, the nerdiest, the dorkiest, dorkiest motorcycle of all time. I call this subcategory the pro gamer. Do you want to guess what it is? The pro game. I don't know. Nah. The Honda NM4 Voltus. <laughs> oh, the Batmobile. Yes. Okay. Yeah. What what what's uh, what's the what's the the brand of of mouse that you use? Um... Oh. Uh, the razor. Yeah, the 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 razor. What well, yours is even the what's the specific model? Um, the Death Adder. The Death Adder. Yeah. So the razor Death Adder of motorcycles, <laughs> right? <laughs> this is. A, it's 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 got everything going for it. It's, it's DCT. Like it's kind of a scooter. It's kind of a bike. It looks like the Batmobile. It's definitely something out of a video game. It's as close as you could actually buy off of the show, like off the showroom floor to the Akira bike. It's got integrated storage. It's it's futuristic in its design. It's kind of rare. It's way too expensive for what it is, which is something that nerds really seem attracted to in a certain sort of strange way. It is so satisfying a purchase for nerds as as a first-time motorcycle. Like it is this is the home run of nerd motorcycles. It really <laughs> I remember you were counting the story of me like realize like when we went to Lucy's and I oh, realized yeah. she, that she had the same ass like oh a razor death and you're like <laughs> and you retold that the experience of watching me realize that and you're like oh tis a noble weapon <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. 
Exactly. <laughs> or no, 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 an elegant weapon. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you can't deny the the NM4 vol. I kind of really want one. I think I think it's a bike that will be oddly collectible at some point. It's never going to be top top dollar as a collectible motorcycle, but I think 30 years from now it's going to sort of be that kind of motorcycle that if you if you go to an old British bike show now if someone has like a Douglas right it's not going to be the queen of the show. It's not going to be the bell of the ball, but people that kind of know are going to stop and go, Oh, you don't see a lot of these, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there's nothing super magical about it, but there kind of is. And that's one of Honda's first DCT models. And, you know, it and the Integra are kind of the same thing. And, it's also that NC seven hundred sort of platform. It led to other things. I mean, people that know about it, there's things to know about it and get nerdy into it, and there will be nerdy things about it as a collector bike. And again, just the looks really are going to help sell it and make it collectible. They didn't make a lot of them. It's really in there. I'd kind of like to have one. And just sit on it. Because prices have got to be plummeting on them, right? Yeah. Who wants one right now? We were looking at one at Steel Cycles that was like two years old with 3,000 miles. And they wanted like 10 grand for it. I thought it was more like eight or nine, but it was still a lot. It was ludicrous. Yeah. But someone's gonna, someone's. I mean, a lot of people have just put a little, have like painted a bat, a Batman logo on the front of them by now. Like you, you know, you want to take that off and just get it back to stock. But I think it's something that you'll see it shows twenty, thirty years from now, and people will go like, a lot of people have forgotten about it, just straight up forgotten about it. And some people remember it, and some people go, "What was that?" and whatever. But it is right now a great nerd item and then as a collectible in the future will take on a different life as an even more elite nerd collectible item so it's it like i said in its design it's very anime it's very comic it's very techy as it being early dct it's got, you know, things integrated, storage. It is one of the first Honda bikes, I think, with like, you know, aux input and weird shit like that. It's got um credibility, you know, nerd credibility just in its design and it's sort of it's like, you know, Akira bike sort of setup. It's got collectability, which is a huge nerd thing. And it's just it hits that unique factor that 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 really satisfies i i defy anyone to come up with a better nerd bike it is hardcore it should just come in like a full polyethylene like lining outside 
the crate that it shipped on. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Should we move on to emails? Well, no, there is one honorable mention. Okay. That we need to put in, which is the Suzuki across. I I I I would say that except it's basically a Jixer, which is very far from nerdy. But as you said, it's honorable mention. It's because it's it's so outside mainstream well here it is for sure well yes because you can't get one here well yeah well you could only get them in japan and australia well also it is also honorable mention because it yes it is not available in north america it's Australia and Japan only. But the only the only other bike I can think of that actually kind of hits the same note. In fact, there's no bikes that really hit the same note because of the fact that the only other bike that really has a prominent frunk is the NC700 and the NC750X. But the idea of having an inline four motorcycle that revs to sixteen and a half thousand RPM and also has a frunk that's a little two fifty CC touring bike. There's really nothing else like it. This is also why we pondered for so long about trying to import one. Yeah. And then we, we got- still do need to import one. But we do. We'll, we'll find a way. All right. Let, let's let's move on to uh, to emails here. Actually, first let's do corrections and omissions, which we normally do at the fir- at the beginning of the show. But I forgot about this email that was sent to me. So I don't believe you got this email. Did you get the the back to form episode email from Jonathan? The back to form. I don't no. think so. So it, this one is from Jonathan. He says, hey, Pete, love the show and glad you and Swigs are back. Was listening to your latest show and wanted to weigh in on the emissions of bikes. Unfortunately, small gas engines produce higher levels of emissions, even though they are more fuel efficient. I'm not sure why, but I know there are tests that show the difference. I think Mythbusters did an episode on it. Definitely had my attention when you brought up the Civic 02-05 Civic SI EB3 with the dash center column shifter. I had an 05 that my brother now owns. They did make a Type R, but only for Europe and Asia. 40 horsepower difference and no limited slip for the SI. Enough of the rambling. Keep up the good work, and thank you for entertaining me through my workday. Cheers, Nate. So, okay, yes, motorcycles do make more emissions. Yes and no. Right. They make more emissions because they're allowed to make more emissions. Also, yes and no. Okay. The category of bike that we were envisioning, if you go back and listen carefully, at one point I said, what if the whole point 
of the bike? What if the selling point of the bike is that it's compromised? You choke it up to meet emissions. Hence, it's 40-something horsepower. Mm -hmm. Right? I You can get a motorcycle to meet strict automotive emissions. It's going to severely reduce power, but that's why we suggested it be something in the 400, 450 range. Because, yes, you can get high 20s, mid 30s out of a 250, which is totally usable for traffic and still going to out-accelerate cars and all of that. But by the time you choke it down with emissions regulations and all of that, it's not going to make that good. You need something like a 400, 450, 500 to then choke it down, but still tune it up to that 400, that 40 sort of horsepower number. Uh, Well, yes, but it's on a modern bike. It's, Yes and no, and yes and no, and yes and no. Because in terms of just straight CO2 and carbon monoxide, motorcycles smoke cars hard. Like, there's no contest. In terms of just CO2 and carbon monoxide, motorcycles win every single time. The problem is if you own an older motorcycle, you know, up until essentially like 2005 or so, most motorcycles didn't have a catalytic converter that could deal with sulfur dioxide or other kinds of emissions right modern motorcycles if it's a pre-2005 motorcycle in almost all cases it produces more pollution in two miles than an f-150 you know dually or you know diesel what giant truck over like 80 miles yes and no it's no in terms of co2 and carbon monoxide no motorcycles don't at all they're way better. It's the heavy metals and all the impurities and all the the more the rarer compounds like sulfur dioxide and other heavy metal emissions that's in gasoline. But in terms of just like greenhouse effect, no, motorcycles are way better. Well, yeah, because they're just burning less amounts of fuel to begin with. Right. But pure, if you you look at emissions per, like, amount of fuel burned, motorcycles are worse. Yes. Uh, It depends. Because if you're talking, well, you could also measure it by, if you measure it by things like person miles per fuel burned. Yeah, bikes are better. Yeah, they went out huge. Unless you scale it up. If you think about single person miles and don't allow any other vehicles, they win. But there's also weird effects with like, um, you know, a Honda Civic doing a 200 mile highway drive is way better than four Rebel 250s doing the same mileage. 
Yes. But if you're one person doing that trip, obviously riding a Rebel 250 is way better than one person in a Honda Civic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm saying go ahead and throw all of the emissions things. Let them let them put EGR valves on them, have them recirculate, do all the things to just get those emissions down. Also, if it's not if it's not a track bike, keep your fucking emissions qualified exhaust with its catalytic converter on your modern bike yeah you don't need four horsepower and stupid obnoxious exhaust that nobody likes but you okay like it's just, it's <laughs> all just, right just, just, all right so okay all right so that's corrections and emissions also again as he said um he was a big fan of me mentioning the 0 02 to 05 Civic Type R with the column shifter, which he sent us pictures of, especially one here with a, a fake carbon fiber dash, which I really enjoy. And I, you know, I love this car. I, this car came out when I was working at the, the Hater Factory. And some guy there, I think one of the welders, bought a brand new one. And I was in love with it from, from day one. This this particular Civic, I always knew it was the Type R in in Europe because I was living I was living in the UK when it came out. Seriously cool, seriously cool. Probably the best hot hatch ever, in my opinion. All right, so what emails have you got, Swigs? Uh, lots. Oh, really? Okay, maybe you got more than I saw come in. Well, uh, if you've got one, you should probably start reading it so I can. Well, I don't. Uh, I read the only email that I've got. <sighs> okay. Well, just stick. Just start with one. Just find one, even if it's not mm-hmm. the the first email. Go with it. Oh, here's one we haven't read yet. We got an email from. Brian from Tennessee. I think we read that last week. Uh, did we? I believe we read an email with Brian from Nashville last week. Oh, okay. Well, I don't know where I am then. Adventures in not editing podcasts, everybody. <laughs> Here <laughs> we go. <laughs> Uh oh, let me um Oh my god, Spigs, this is terrible. I gave you so much time to we line this have up. A break. I oh. all right, we're gonna put a break in here. We'll be back. Okay, so now we have our list. The start, Swigs. Okay, so this is uh, from Peter in Australia, and he says, Hey there, Swigs and Mo Pete. I don't know if that's We'll go with it. Okay. Might be a bit late for this week's pod, but you mentioned computer motorcycles. It's never too late. 
And uh, I'm gonna. He says um, I'm going to suggest a previous worst bike of the week, the Honda Deville, or as we say, the Doville. The Doville. <laughs> NTV seven hundred. When you talked about the bike, I didn't remember if you were looking at the early NTV 650 or the later NTV 700. I was definitely looking at the NTV 650. Yes. Uh, And he says, but the credentials are shaft drive, which we acknowledged, torquey power plant, although the bike is a bit heavy and the power plant isn't tuned hard. It's what we call not a power plant. (laughs) And he says, uh, slim line fairing so you get some protection without being an issue in traffic. Built in slim panniers where there is a crossover between the left and right pannier, but behind the back wheel, I added a picture that shows the see-through between the two sides. You could buy larger lids from Honda, but the basic bike had good cargo space even without a top box. While no bullet, the NTV 700 is a really good light slash solo tour and has no problem holding a solid cruising speed, even if acceleration isn't outstanding. I'd also mention some of the weirds like the Honda PCX 800 and the BMW F650 CS Scarver with a fuel tank under the seat so the fuel tank had a range of options for storage. And BMW had city cases available for their monoshock airheads. I had these on my R100R, and they were fantastic. Wet weather gear in one side, work bag in the other, plenty of room to pick up bread and milk. And no impact on the bike width. Ducati had a Monster 900 City with high bars and briefcase-style bags and Triumph Standard bags for the Street Twin and T120 are similar. Uh, No locking, though, so I don't know if they were really valid for city use cases. Hope you are funnin' on those scooters. Cheers, Peter in Sydney. Okay, so Peter... Your your mention of the Dowville 700 makes every other bike you mentioned after that irrelevant. Retarded, I would even say. <laughs> because it's no, like all that- about the integrated storage. And, you know, you're right. We talked about the Dowville 650, and the 700 is... It is so much better. It fixes so many problems of the 650. It's just that the world just wasn't ready to accept it. And it's that integrated storage that the bags are not even removable. I mean, there's a way you could make them removable, but like the bike just isn't right without the the bags incorporated into it. And that pass-through especially – the pass-through is kind of a killer feature. Like, this is ridiculous. Just having, like, essentially the full width of the bike transverse storage available to you. Like, you could roll up a poster in that. You could get oh, yeah. 
if you know with some finagling or with some compromise there are like mic stands you can get into that there are there's all sorts of crazy stuff that you can fit into that space that is awesome tent poles yeah you could take your you could take your uh your camping tent split everything up and put all of the fabric in one part of the bike and then put the tent poles across there without having to strap stuff across the back of the the seat like that's a killer feature and why don't we still have that right well because there's just so because the reason the reason is is that motorcycle we talk about lifestyles right but the word lifestyle has just been hijacked to mean cold of, brew of a fashion and all sorts of inane bullshit just of a fashion right but really lifestyle means a a method in which you live your life right and we are big proponents of motorcycles as an actual lifestyle you ride it to work you go get your groceries and do shopping with it you do your things on a motorcycle and if you do do those do everything on a motorcycle there's nothing wrong with having one bike that's all flash and huge horsepower like an r1 or something like that and then Maybe another motorcycle that's great for going and getting stuff. Or maybe you only have room in your life for one bike that kind of has to do it all. And integrated storage, it seems like such a dorky fucking thing to talk about. Storage on your bike. But if it's the difference between riding one day a month or 20 days a month. Well, now you're talking about a pretty big thing. Exactly. If it allows you to take the things with you, move the things around, right? Well, then all of a sudden, you know, I have, I took a lot of shit from some people at my current job for riding a bike most days that I can. Until there's this one day I had to move four cases of French fries from one restaurant to another. And I did it on the Vulcan. And I packed all the bags full of them. But I also at one point I took like one full case of fries and like tied it to the back seat. And then had other bags like tied on top of it. And I got it all done. And I moved it. And I showed up and even started snowing by the time I got to the other store. But but people were like impressed. They're like, oh shit, I thought you had to have a car to do things like this. And I'm like, well, no, with just a little bit of how to and a determination and a, and a, and a, a sincere desire to want to ride a bike, you'd be amazed. I can do 99% of what you all do with your cars with this bike. Go fuck yourself. This is what I do. I ride bikes. And I really haven't caught a lot of shit for it after that. There are people that think motorcycles are just this dumb kind of adolescent or or pre-geriatric kind of phase of your life. 
And that's just not true. Most of the planet knows that's not true. But in Western culture, it it has this weird reputation of just being this, you know, these these toys for boys. And that's not have, what motorcycles are. I have the perfect explanation of how pathetic the philosophy this is in the American world. Uh-huh. And this is... I don't know if you've ever experienced this. This is something that you see a lot if you ha- if you work at a corporate gig in an office, which is the fucking loser who drives a four-door sedan and he's got a briefcase and he doesn't, even though he drives a four-door, four-seater sedan to work, he doesn't put his his briefcase with his laptop in the shotgun seat. He has to put it in the back seat of his car. So that he's got to, rather than lift, go through the arduous effort of lifting his briefcase back over the center console, he's got to open his door, get out, and then open the back door on the driver's side to pick his laptop off the back seat. Like, just kill yourself. Just get it over with. You're done. But yeah. Why? Just why? Yeah. Like, do you, if you have to smooth out your exertion in the process of getting out of your car, just... Just end it. You're done. I. That may be a little harsh, but I it stand, is a little harsh. <laughs> I stand by it. Just I. I know what you're talking about. You're you're talking about the ultimate example of someone that is not willing to adapt to the situation. Everything has to. You need to have more more solutions present than you have problems at any given moment to feel safe. That's what you're talking about. Well, not only that, but just you're not even willing. You're not prepared to have to solve a problem in the middle of your day. That and uh, it, I, I I don't know if I can even possibly relate and put myself in this person's shoes because I I don't know if I could keep on living if I had this mindset. All right, we're about to cross two hours. Let's get to the next email. Okay, and we are now reading uh jacob who has talking about performance baggers and he says listen to you guys talk about the king of baggers race tells me you need to do a search spelled s-u-r-c-h for performance baggers uh i'm gonna take that as a stylistic cue rather than a spelling mistake because i want to believe And he says, the look and feel of these race bikes is a real thing. This race was pushed by the movement of the performance baggers. 
which I totally believe because this is essentially where Harley stage kits came from. Okay. Listen, I totally hear you, Jacob, and I'm absolutely with you now, but what you need to know is that performance baggers in the grand scheme of things, not just America, but just talk globally worldwide with motorcycles this is as rare, weird, and fetishist as Bo Suzoku. Okay? This is, yeah, it, this is like wasabi-flavored condoms. <laughs> like, this is not... Okay, maybe not that weird, but... <laughs> I think is... we've got the name of the episode right there. Um, <laughs> That's definitely the name of this episode. So, <laughs> Sorry, condoms. Okay. was that just off the fly there, Swigs? Is that from was, anything? Yeah. Okay, that's no. great. All right, so yeah, the these bikes. Okay, performance baggers. All right. When when you think baggers, you don't normally think performance. I know you go into any Harley dealership and there's like, you know, like the hundred horsepower club or whatever. Um I mean th- this is a this is like the, the when you when you look at performance baggers, it, it is close to these race bikes, but not th- there are still things. Um the the actual race spec bikes as it turned out. Um uh, but yeah, it is it is pretty damn close. You're right. It is a thing. It has been happening. I know there's been these Harley guys doing all these wheelies all over the place and stunts on their bikes and 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 getting them performanced out, of course. But before you before you you know, you, you say we don't know what we're talking about, you you need to know this is not something most people have been aware of. It's it's still a weirdo thing. And I'm with you, but I um I th- I think my point still holds true that as this race series gets more popular, you're gonna start seeing more people go this direction stylistically with their baggers. I, I think I think that dynamic is definitely is definitely gonna happen. I don't know. What are you, what are your thoughts, Swigs? I think it's going to go both ways the same way that um, the same way that NASCAR does. Function will follow form and then form will follow function again and again and again until everything meets in the middle. Yeah, I, I think I think with these bikes, what initially put me off about them was well why because you can just buy a sport bike off the showroom floor that's so much better and it really took this this racing series or this potential racing series for me to understand why this is cool for me to get it i didn't get it but in actually seeing them race i got it I was like, of course, it does. It doesn't matter if your bike is the peak of, of what's. It doesn't matter if your starting place is is the best platform to start off for for something fast. It's just just modding stuff is cool anyway. It, it's fine, 
and if pick it's a baggers, platform, yeah, and then from that establish a formula, and you could have a whole new formula racing season. And that's what's happening, and it's great. And I, I'm, it's probably not something I'm going to do myself, but I'm totally on board with it. And there are a lot of cool one-off builds that people have been doing with this. I think, I think there are a couple little stylistic cues that specifically I saw in the King of the Baggers race that I think are going to come into this. I think the uh, completely deleting the plastic from the fairings, completely taking out the windshields, is something you'll see. I, um, I think. There's a couple other things that might make their way into the race bikes, uh, like the um, the painting of the forks and the frames, just to make the whole look of the bikes pop. Because so much about this racing series is going to be getting people to connect with the bikes that they own, right? Great racing series. Great racing series do that. They get you to connect with the product that you own at home and connect that with the bike that's or the bike or the car or the boat or whatever that's on the track or the circuit. Great racing series do that. And you know, with all of these cruisers and baggers, like there's so much room for sponsorships. So <laughs> much room for sponsors. <laughs> it's true. All right, let's go to the next email. All right. And this is from Eric with a uh, a paper plate award. And one of his suggestions is, he says, Swiggy and Pete, it's great to hear you on air again. I have a paper plate award for you for the tech that has sidelined the most bikes. The BMW IABS or ABS-3 servo-assisted braking system on 2002-2008 BMW motorcycles. No single piece of tech that nobody asked for has ever sidelined as many solid-running bikes as this piece of tech. Here's a list of motorcycles you can pick up cheap because of this disaster. Keep up the great work and continue to be yourselves. This is why we listen. And this is basically every motorcycle from 2002 <laughs> until 2008 with the word K or R in front of it. Holy <laughs> crap. <laughs> I have never personally had experience with this, but I have heard legend of this horrible, horrible thing. It's I think I think the the big problem with it, and, and I'm, someone's gonna have to correct me on this, but what I've heard about this ABS system, because I've heard like Cleveland Moto talk about this. I'm pretty sure I've heard um oh my gosh, from the Miss, Miss Emma talk about this, like professional motorcycle techs that, that, I, that I've come across as well. Well, I mean, both of them are professional motorcycle guys, but uh, is that it's not so much that the, well, it is a problem. It does have plenty of problems in the way it works and fails in and of itself, 
But when things go really bad is when people try to service it at home and air gets stuck in it. And it's just this. There's just no way back. It just never works right again. Like out of the box, the whole thing is great. And then it comes time to service it. And then someone services it incorrectly. And it's just a fucking pain in the ass or a bitch to get it working right again after that. There's just air gets into places you just can't get it out. Is what I've heard about it. I mean, someone can correct me and maybe there's some other problem with seals in it somewhere or whatever. But from what I understand, it's basically just unserviceable is the problem. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's pretty solid. That is a strong paper plate award because I've heard legend of this. All right. Next email. And this is another one from Peter, who is giving us so much wonderful content. And here he's, uh, this should have been a correction, but it kind of needs to go in this section because there's so much content here. And he has titled his email, Actually. And he says, Mopete and Swigs. I don't even know how to pronounce it. He's done swigs with one G and a comma. Uh, I'm going to assume that Peter was as drunk as I am now writing this email. And he says, your intruder got me all butthurt. Maybe it's a USA model thing, but the VS 1400 intruder Ran from around 1985 with very few changes. So not sure how you locked on to the model around 1994 to 1995 for the pod's best worst bike of the week. The interwebs says it went five-speed gradually across markets from 91 starting in Europe and got five-speed in the USA in the mid-90s. So maybe that's where your specific date range cut in. You're absolutely right. This looks like two 650 Savage top ends bolted together, just like an XV1100 is two XD500 top ends. But the the VS1400, for the very best of... Er, uh, but... The VS1400 has the very best of 1985 GSXR technology with its oil-cooled sax motor and three valve heads. That's the Suzuki Advanced Cooling System. Man, they loved labeling bikes with acronyms in the 80s. All the performance Suzukis had this oil cooling across singles, including the DR Big and the Ultralight Sports NZ250 Cruiser Twins, and the Bandit Tour, or the Bandit 4. There was a Tariff Buster VS700 for the USA, but everybody else got a VS750 and a VS1400. 
The thing was designed to be long, raked, and skinny. The weird swing arm is the Suzuki designed to have a very fat back tire, but a very slim frame behind the engine. The frame would have been much wider if the swing arm pivots were placed normally. This also puts the shaft drive outside the frame rails. I think that's unique. Not everything unique is special. Just going to put that out there. Compared to the 1985 VN1500 Vulcan, a monstrosity that had soggy suspension, big torque, and a hair trigger hydraulic clutch, and the angular VT1100, the intruder was, to my eyes, closest to the cruising the cruiser styling mark for the Japanese factories. I reckon the heads were supposed to remind people of the HD Evo blockhead. Nah. For marketing, the VS engine was around 20 cc's larger than an Evo Harley and was a fair was a far better ride than the bigger engine Kawasaki. The VT1100 was less compromised with cruiser styling and probably handled and braked best. For marketing, the VS engine was around or er, the same line. I've attached pictures of the ultra rare 1987 NZ250. I'd love to have. It runs 33 horsepower from an uh, an oil cooled single and just 120 kilos. This is from the SRX250 and CBX250 era. Australia had a 250cc learner limit. Uh, all this, you know, Japanese market. It's a good things. thing people love listening to you read these drunk. <laughs> it is good. Uh, all right. So, um, yeah. Okay. Let's just cut, cut to the chase here. We're going to there. Look, okay. I understand. Well, no, he's, you don't. No, he's got. A lot <laughs> I of, understand. He has a lot of good points of all the tech and all the reasons why they did all the things they. Well, we did. never attacked the motor on this bike. No, we didn't. We never said we attacked the look of it, but not not the engineering. Because we, will, I will always defend Suzuki engineering. Right, Suzuki will never. Suzuki will never compromise. They will always do everything, and even if they have to do it in their own way and potentially hit a price point, for the number of grams of steel that go into that motor and into that frame, they will excel. Always will. Yes. But that's not what we really attacked. What we attacked was the attempt to match the Harleys and to go into a market that they didn't understand because the motivations of that market is not what they do. Well, plenty of, of non plenty of non-American manufacturers have tried to do the, the custom chopper or custom cruiser out of the box. And I think 
the reason that it resonated with you and me as a worst bike in the world is that of all the manufacturers, the one least suited to do it is Suzuki. Let's yeah. let's take all the other versions of the custom cruiser out of the box through the 80s and 90s. Well, I think all of them stylistically, although by perhaps sometimes even only trivial margins, do get closer to the mark, right? Even something as embarrassing as the Honda Fury hits the mark a little better than this does, I think. I mean, it's subjective, of course. But a manufacturer like Suzuki that's so performance-based, that's so hardcore engineering-based, it doesn't make sense for them to cheapen themselves to go for something so far outside of their zone. It makes more sense for a company with more resources, with less focus, or or a company like Honda that just naturally has a wider, you know, uh, more breadth in its customer base. Well, there's actually... It just, uh, of all the manufacturers, it doesn't make sense for Suzuki to do this. It just doesn't. Well, the divine providence here is that the best bike in the world this week was a cruiser, and an American-style cruiser, by Suzuki... But they did it in their own way. Right. And they made it fit into their own philosophy. They made a category killer, which is a very Suzuki thing to do. I don't know if the rest of the world agrees with that. That That's our view. Yeah. I, I mean, I, we, we've talked about this, how we have a, a, a strong feel for who these companies are. Because all the big four, or, well... A lot of large motorcycle manufacturers have a very distinctive personality to them that they never really waver far from. I mean, of course, you get things like the Ducati Indiana, where a company just loses its mind. But but that's only for a brief moment. Ducati is very Ducati 99.9% of the time, right? And so are Kawasaki and Yamaha and Suzuki and and you know and Harley Davidson and all you know Polaris all these all these manufacturers are they're so they're so big and they're so successful because they found a little tune that they play very well that no one else is quite zeroed in on as well as they have and yeah for for the Suzuki fourteen hundred. Specifically in that year, I think you picked it just because of the the colors and the styling particular to that year for the U.S. market. It's just the year it looked the worst. It was the year that it was it – was because when we pick the best and worst bikes, it's not just the bike static in time. It's, 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 it's where it – well, I mean sometimes it's static in time and sometimes it's where it was – you know, at that time, sometimes it's what it was then and what kind of a buy or value is it now. That was definitely a bike. That was definitely a bike you picked because in that year, it was less relevant than it was in, let's say, 1987. Right. By the late 90s, that bike in the market 
it with that styling, with that engine, with all those things, just was the moment it made the least amount of sense. Right. Yeah, because that's like peak Harley years. Why would anyone go for the Suzuki at that time? So, yeah. Bad credit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, any more emails or? Um, ba, 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 ba. I think that's the end of it. That is the end, except that Joe says that we're back on topic, that he loves us, and Joe, keep your distance. Just, okay. okay. This is this is like five emails and three episodes. I That's love you, fine. man. I love your enthusiasm. Well, no, no. Keep sending us emails. We'll keep we'll keep reading them. We may not read all of them in the email segment of the show, but keep sending us emails. That's fine. I'm going to start drinking, and I think you've already <laughs> been drinking swigs. Okay, we haven't in email responded to Joe, but I'm going to start sending him some crazy emails if he keeps responding. I think that guarantees he's going to keep sending you emails now. Okay. I don't know. I'm going to weird him out. Good. I think he's looking for that. All right. So let's finish this episode. How about that, huh? It's probably a good idea. So this has been episode 125 of the Nokomoto podcast. Remember, stay tuned. Catch up on the Road Warrior. Look forward to that commentary coming up. It's going to be so much fun. Let's see. Send your emails, your questions, your comments, your thoughts, your feelings to contact at nokomotopodcast.com. You can also send them to just MotoGP at nokomotopodcast.com or just Swiggy at nokomotopodcast.com. It's all fair game. I mean, we have all these inboxes. Let's use them, right? And with that, I'm going to remind everyone to stay safe, stay tuned, and keep fucking the dragon. Let's do the outro. And I don't want to die I just want to ride on my moat